If you could have a conversation with anyone in history, what would you ask them? Hello, General Washington. Good day, Miss Tubman. I had to know, so I decided let's give them a call. Welcome, Welcome to the, the Calling, Calling History, history Podcast. Podcast. Welcome back to part two with Benjamin Franklin. Considering how much Franklin accomplished in his life, I was surprised at how quickly he named his one great regret at the end. This was a good reminder that when you strip away the legend and the lore, he was just a man like the rest of us. But we have much to cover before that. Here is part two of The Call with Benjamin Franklin. It was, it was the junto of the beginning of when you decided to start sharing books and create a library? Well, it, uh, the sharing of the books was one of the functions of the junto. Uh, obviously, books are so important, and they're so, so rare that if you have a book, you can only read it so many times before you understand what it's about, and then it's, it's of minimal value to you. But if someone else has another book, and you can read that, that helps to encourage and to, uh, to, to expand your knowledge. How do you get these books? You get these books by having everyone bring them their books together so that you can share them. And, of course, I had many books, and I said, let me share them with you, and you share yours with me. And ultimately, we created a library because it was, be, it was so successful that people wanted more access to books. And so it became not just the function of the junto, but a function of the society and in Pennsylvania, in Philadelphia, that we should have books available to those in the general population who wanted to borrow a book. And you would subscribe per annum to, to uh, uh, the, the, the organization with so many shillings or whatever it was, and that would give you the right to come and borrow a book and read it. And when you're finished, come back and read another and read another and read another. And with the money, we would keep our books in repair. We would rent a place, ultimately, because the library grew so large that we couldn't keep it in the junto room anymore and carry them about with us on our backs. And so we had a room, actually, in Carpenter's Hall. And people could come, and if, God forbid, they should lose a book, well, they, they would have to pay for it. Uh, plus, there would be a fine, and that would enable us, if not to replace that book, to get another book or two to replace the total number of books, so that we always had a library from which people could borrow and learn. That's fantastic. When you look at the fact that you know you had the interest that you had in in printing and and use the silence do good letters to to share some of your thoughts about maybe how people were being treated. And as I read the Silence Do Good Letters, I see lessons about life. That, that's what I see. And then you look at the Junto, where you have these groups that build off of one another and pass information out. As you said, 9 becomes 81 or 90 and so forth. And then you look later in your life to when you were starting, I, I think, a, a free college and then, of course, paid colleges. As I look at your life, it looks to me, sir, that number one above everything, if I were to two words 
were to come to my mind, one would be the importance of virtue in your life, but the other one would be education. And it seemed to me like you were trying to educate the colonists. I mean, what, what, how important is education to you? Or, I mean, am I, am I way out off base here? Or does it I make sense what I'm saying? I don't know at all. And I suspect, yes. In the course of my life, education has been primary. I've sought to educate myself. You know, my father was a Chandler. Well, that wasn't his uh, occupation in England, but when he came here, he, he took up trade as uh, there was no need for, for men who were dyeing silk. The women and the men were not wearing silks in Philadelphia when he came in the late 1600s. So he became a maker of candles and soap. And, oh my, I've, I've lost my train of thought. No, I, I was asking you about education. I was uh, asking the, you about education and the importance of it to you. Yes. For others. Well, I, I, I had a, uh, a stream of thought, and I'm sorry. I think the apple has taken my thought away. <laughs> This apple is guilty of a lot in our conversation so far. Yes, maybe we maybe we could come back to that. Let me ask you something about your father and your grandparents. They were all born in England, is my understanding, but your mother was born in Massachusetts. Is that correct? She was born in uh, Martha's Vineyard. Okay, and her father, which would be your grandfather, was rebellious in nature. Is that correct? Mother didn't say that very much. I think she didn't want to encourage me. I see. So she, yeah, uh, well, that makes sense. So, cantankerous, perhaps, but I don't know if we would say rebellious. My goodness. Okay, uh, well, we would definitely won't go there. Maybe we could talk about the languages. I understand you speak several languages. You speak Dutch and German and French. How? Tell me a little bit about... I mean, the amount of effort that it would take to learn all these languages, if I'm correct, that's what you speak. Did you have a strategy to learning language? Well, I read a great deal. And out of curiosity, oh, I know what I was saying. We were talking, I'm going to go back to the previous question. We were talking yeah. about education. And my father, because he was a Chandler and because he had such a large family, he was not able to afford to send me to school, not for very long. And so I had the advantage of two full years of uh, a public education, which my father financed, but he was unable to finance any more than that. And in the school that I attended, the class that I attended, I studied arithmetic, which I never learned until much later, actually, and reading which I had come upon myself, and I had practiced myself so that I was a good reader and a fairly decent writer by the time I went to school. Oh, I improved, I assure you, greatly. But even the, the improvements were, were, were self-inflicted, if you will, and so that I looked after my education and I looked after uh, becoming a better writer because I felt it was necessary. And we were talking about being an educator. So I suspect throughout my life, 
education has played a tremendous part in, in motivating me. And I felt that if it should do this to me and for me and with me and by me, it would do the same for other people. And so I have always educated and always advocated for education, even for women, I must tell you. For uh, the women have a good mind and should not be held uh, slave to the fire or slave to, to, to the home. They should be given the, the, the opportunity, at least, to learn to read and write. That's basic. And, and so... It going like it. to earlier question about education, yes, I think everything I've done basically comes down to how can we educate ourselves? How can we educate those who are interested in being educated? Well, I think that that will cover the education element of the question that you asked previously, and we might go on to the next one at this point, and I'm going to yeah. enjoy a bite of apple. Okay. <laughs> uh, during your time, you had mentioned that uh, women, that they should be able to read and write. Is it not common that women can read and write in your time? Oh, absolutely not, sir. Hmm. It's not common? Absolutely not. A woman, a woman had the family and raised the family and ran the house and did the cooking and the washing and, and, and what have you. But no, she was not given the education. Only the males were given education, except in the rarest of situations, one of which was my own daughter. And I wanted her educated, and so she was educated. And she could read, and she could write, and she could do numbers. But for the most part, women were not given that opportunity. Later on, there was a point where you were attempting to start a school. The academy. And in Philadelphia, and the academy was for those who came through uh, the the public school, uh, who needed advanced training in the philosophy, and uh, perhaps in other professions. And they uh, there was no place, as there had been, for example, a Harvard School in uh, Massachusetts, uh, and uh, 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 William and Mary in. Uh, uh, in uh, uh, Williamsburg, in Virginia, were magnificent schools that long established a precedent for higher learning in the colonies. And we had nothing like that in Philadelphia. And so one of the many things that the Junto came up with was the need for better education for its senior students, not just the junior ones. And so the idea was, was founded that we should establish an academy where there was a place for these students to go. And that's how the academy was founded. And was there a cost to go to the academy? There was a cost, so I don't remember. <laughs> but okay. was, of course, there was the uh, rental for the facility. There was the uh, rental, uh, the cost for hiring the, the, the professors. There was certainly administrative costs of some sort. And uh, that didn't include your own room and lodging, whatever that was. For the most part, you came from your family in, in Philadelphia. But occasionally there were, come, uh, there were students who came from outside the area who had to be put up someplace. So there were costs involved indeed. But, uh, but that's 
that's how we established the, the, uh, the situation, and we were able to establish the academy. And so if a woman had wanted to come to the academy to go to school, what would have been said? Well, could she read and could she write? And again, yes. most of would never have had the opportunity to learn. I see. So there was no path to even start that direction at that point. Interesting. Let's go back to your newspapers for a minute. As you were building, I guess what I would call your newspaper empire, at one point you stopped just printing the newspaper yourself and started bringing in partners. Is that correct? Well, I had a partner, Mr. Hall, but I'm not sure that it is an empire. Yes, there were outcroppings again of, of people who learned the trade uh, at the shop and would go off to their colonies with our support and with, with the, the goods that, that we could furnish, and they would run their newspaper. But I hardly could call that an empire. It wasn't as if, well, in part, uh, uh, there was a certain financial obligation on their part uh, which we recognized and which we, uh, which we benefited from. But I wouldn't call it an empire. It's not as if uh, uh, the New England Current, for example, appeared in multiple uh, colonial uh, cities. Uh, the, the local city would have whatever paper it was called. But there was a connection to the, to the Franklin printing shop in Philadelphia. Were you providing news that would go out to different newspapers and then that you would receive some sort of financial benefit from those different organizations that you were supplying news to? Did it work news, like that? Well, news came from all sorts of sources. Certainly when our newspapers would come in from the various other cities, we would read and we would, we would uh, 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 copy, if we will, the news that we felt would be beneficial and interesting to the, to the citizens of Philadelphia. Uh, but we could not rely on that because we didn't know what was going on. We would also get mail, of course, from overseas and from the West Indies. And that information would be published as it was received. But it's not as if we had uh, a network of, uh, an organized network of receiving news on a regular basis. It would come to us in whatever form it did. Newspapers would publish occurrences of weather, for example. They would publish whatever was happening locally, not just who was, which barn burned down or which a new business was a startup business, but whatever was of major interest to the people of the city. And if we felt that that was of interest to the people in Philadelphia, again, then we would, we would make sure that it appeared in our newspaper as well. Okay, that makes sense. Let's get forward a little bit. I want to talk about the time that you spent in London. You were in England for a long time before, before the revolution, weren't you? Well, you know, initially I went to London when I was 19 or 20. And was that when you went with William Keith? I didn't actually go with him. He oh. was the one who sent me on the goose chase. <laughs> Tell me about that if you would. Here I was in 
Philadelphia at the time, and he was governor of Philadelphia, and or mayor of uh, Philadelphia. He knew of my interest in books, and he knew of my abilities as a printer, and he knew of my interest in starting up my own business, and he had a devilish way of of playing with people's interests and uh, and uh, desires, and as I found out later, he played games with people. But what he did was to tell me that he would be interested in helping me get my shop. He would introduce me to friends of his in London who had both the knowledge and the finance to be able to set me up in a shop which I would purchase in London and bring back to Philadelphia. And I would be able to pay off the, the shop uh, from my earnings. Well, you can imagine to a 20, 21-year-old uh, man uh, who's looking very earnestly to, to establish himself, that was a phenomenal opportunity. And so I said, yes, yes, yes. And we arranged for, for me to go abroad to, to London. And he said, Ben, I shall give you these letters so that you'll have them before you board. Well, before we boarded and before I boarded, and it was in Newcastle in Delaware, I, I went, uh, he didn't give me the letters, but he said, they'll give it to you on the ship once it sails. Well, of course, now I'm on the ship. And the captain of the ship says, no, I'm not giving any letters. Uh, but if, if we have them, they'll be waiting for you when we get to, uh, when I open the letter pouch, when we get to London. And so some eight or nine or ten or eleven weeks later, I can't remember exactly how long it was, but it was a time. We finally arrived, and of course I'm waiting there for the captain to open the the envelope and the, the pouch with all the letters in it. And he did, and there was nothing for me. And at this time I realized it was a game. It was a chase. And, well, and I had made fool of. Well, I was trained as a printer. I did present myself as a printer, and so I went to the chapels in London, the chapels of the print shops, and I looked for work, and I found work, and I was in London, and I earned, and I enjoyed, and I didn't save a farthing, but that's how I got to London. But you see, there was never any intent by the part of Mr. Keith to provide me with any of the letters he, he said he would. And I apparently he I had done imagine. this to others as well. It was not just to me. And It was uh, just a game that he played. He was just a, it was a, a game he played. Person. He took pleasure in uh, sending men off to England, I suspect. I well, used the opportunity the best I could. I learned what I could. I, I had a magnificent time in England. That was my first time in England. Well, I think what you were saying uh, was much later, after I was elected into the assembly, 
I was sent to England to represent Philadelphia. At that time, you see, uh, things had changed, and we were now involved with the uh, the Ten Years' War, if, uh, as it was known, or the Seven Years' War, excuse me. And we... I'm sorry, I'm, I'm musing on this apple, which is almost finished. And, uh, <laughs> You're fine. <laughs> and, 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 we all get hungry. Those days, my word, those days. And I was sent to ask the uh, Penn brothers, Thomas, the, uh, the oldest son of William Penn, who was now in England with his brothers, about taxing their land so that we could, we could outfit ourselves and protect ourselves against any marauder who might be coming up the Delaware Bay or the Delaware River and firing upon us in Philadelphia. As, of course, the river was open, the bay was open, and the bay went into the ocean, which, which, which bled across the, the Atlantic all the way to anyone who would come and do us harm. And therefore, we were most concerned. Plus, we also had the disadvantage of, on the other side, across the, the uh, Schuylkill River, the Western Territories, where all the Indians were. And they could come to us from the West. So between the West and the East, we were caught in the middle in a very narrow strip of land, which was difficult to protect. And we wanted to buy the cannon, and we wanted to buy the, the black powder and other things necessary so that we could protect ourselves in Philadelphia. And I was sent because the, the council then decided that we would tax ourselves, and we wanted to tax the Penlands as we taxed ourselves so that we could enhance our, uh, our uh, collection. And certainly, that was a reasonable idea, so everyone felt. And we but would the go... the Pens didn't agree. Is that correct? You know, when I got to England, they knew, of course, I was there, and they knew why I was there. And it was a year, a year before Thomas Penn would gain me, uh, grant me audience. A year! I waited a year before I could talk to him before he would deign to let me talk to him. I think in so the end... So what happened when you spoke with him? Well, at, in the end, we got some concession. Something was, uh, was uh, arranged that we could collect some sort of a tax on the lands. Well, you can imagine being the charter uh, of the colony to the, the area. Uh, they, uh, they held tremendous land wealth based mm -hmm. on lands charted to his father, William Penn. Yeah, we, we were able to get something. Again, I don't recall exactly what it was, but I was so furious that it took a year, a year well, to see the man. Looking back, obviously, this was another game that somebody was playing with you because the longer he waited, the less taxes he had to pay. Well, I'm sure he wanted to pay nothing. That's, and what, I, that's what I mean. The total, I, I suspect, he actually didn't pay very much. But the point is, he paid something. And at that yeah. point, we were delighted that he paid anything and even recognized the fact that his lands uh, being protected by us and our lands were all co-joined, and, and it was in his best interest that he, he enabled us to, to protect them. At that time, through the Assembly, you're trying to raise money through taxes to protect yourself and, and get cannons and protect yourself. 
what was more dangerous at that time? Was it the French or was it the Indians or was it both? Yes. It was especially the French and it was the Indians. You see, the Indian tribes had been appealed to by the French. Well, the Indian tribes had been appealed to by many people. The Dutch earlier in New York, of course, in Delaware. And the French had made friends with the Indians and had promised them God knows what. The idea was, of course, the French wanted to move into the Ohio River Valley. And it was in the Ohio River Valley that most of the the action was fought. The settlers, the American settlers, the colonial settlers were held east of the Allegheny Mountains and could not go west. And on those occasions when they would occasionally go west, they were met with tremendous force by the Indians, prompted by the French who were told, who told the, the Indians that uh, they've got to get rid of the, the, the American settlers uh, because we were after God knows what. Well, we probably were, but the point is it was the French who were telling the Indians to murder the, the settlers, and that was not acceptable to us. And so we asked for British help. The British, too, were concerned, as the British obviously thought that these lands were going to be their lands and not the French. The British were not about sharing with anybody. And so it was in the British best interest to support us wherever they could, and they did. But, but that's a little bit about the, the French and the Indian War. There were numerous skir skirmishes. There were numerous battles between the British and the French and the, the Indians and the settlers, and it was a very difficult time. I can see that. You know, it's extraordinary to, to look at what happened and see that we're talking about the, the time that you're, I think you're talking about would have been 17, like 50s, maybe 1760, somewhere in that time, I'm guessing. And just 15 years later, you find yourself being asked or strongly encouraged to leave London and end up speaking with the French. And where we had been trying to protect ourselves from the French, somehow you managed to convince them to be our ally. You give me credit that is not due me, I assure you. Well, you can see, the French had been in the, in the colonies in the area of the, uh, of the new United States, as it would become, for many years. It's not as if they suddenly showed up one day and, and, and set, a pal, uh, set out their tricolor and said, we're here. No, they had been there, and they, they were living amongst us, as, as had been the Indians. And uh, they, they knew what was going on, and they knew what was happening in, in, in the colonies and the unrest that was being created as a result of the British policies and the, the uh, American resistance to those policies. They knew what was happening. Now, you can appreciate the fact that there was no love lost between the French and the British. None whatsoever. And it came to be known by the French that we, we were interested in desisting ourselves from the, from the British nation. And the French said, again, they would have supported anyone who was fighting the British, 
that if, in fact, we would fight the British, and if we could win over the British, they would support us. And that is it really? Is it oh, really yeah. that simple? That once the Brit, once the French who are fighting the British nonstop, even though the American colonists would have been considered British citizens at that point and would have been fighting the French, is it really that simple that? when you've got the unrest in the colonies, that the French just look at that situation and say, okay, all right, if these guys are willing to fight the French, I don't care how long we've been battling these colonists. I mean, if they're going to fight the British, then we are happy to jump onto their side. Is it really that simple? Yes, it was. Maybe no, it wasn't. But it didn't happen overnight. It was many years in, in developing. And so you must re appreciate the fact that this was an extended developmental phase of our relationship, the American relationship with the French. And in part, much of this happened when I was in England. You see, much of the discord that began to happen happened when I was overseas, and so I was not a first-party witness to what was being said and what was being read and what was happening day by day in the colonies. And I was in a position where the only news I could have of what was happening was that which came to me uh, overseas in newspapers or letters from friends of mine who would talk about what was happening with the, uh, the British barricade of Boston, for example. And in this way, I could find out what was going on, and I could try and petition the, the Privy Council members whom I knew to release their pressure to recognize the fact that we wanted to be allies. We, we wanted to be equals, the Americans, with the, with the British, that we were British, we considered ourselves British, and we wanted to be a beautiful commonwealth on the west side of the Atlantic Ocean with uh, Mother England uh, where she is in the East. And that was, that was my, my, my stance and my position for most of the time that I was in England. And I should tell you, I was in England now for the better part of 15 years. I came home briefly for about two years, but then I was back in England. And so I was in England for uh, most of the, the, the difficult times that were being faced in, Eng in, in the colonies with the, the, uh, the work that was going on and the, the, uh, the attempts by the British to, to, to subjugate the uh, colonists. You came back to the United States in 1775, right, when the revolution was starting to really get bad. Is that correct? Well, it had been going on for a while. Well, there were people who said it started with the massacre in Boston, as I believe, but I'm not, I don't recall, I'm sorry, that that was in 73. And there had been tremendous unrest in the colonies, which I, I could only see by letter when it came to me, or newspaper, when it came to me in England. And I could go to the Privy Council and I could, uh, bring to this to their attention and attempt to, uh, to show them that, for example, the, the tax on a uh, stamp tax was a ill-conceived 
tax which would not achieve the results it was intended to achieve. And ultimately, yes, that was repealed. But that didn't happen immediately, and that, that happened with me, in a sense, in a vacuum, because I could not appreciate the fervor that was growing in the colonies against the British. Tremendous yeah, I didn't realize that it felt so distant to you, because, again, you're getting it in newspapers and letters. So when you're hearing these stories, and you're hearing about the Boston Massacre, and, and are you wishing that you were back in the United States, or were you completely happy being in London? Well, I was happy. I was. London is a marvelous place, sir. A, ma- a magnificent place, a cultured place, far beyond anything that we have, even in Philadelphia. The scope of the the culture in in England is well, it, it, it so far outshines. Uh, and you must appreciate the fact that having read as much as I did and having studied as much as I did. Uh, culture meant a great deal to me, uh, and uh, literature, and art, and, 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 and communication, and people, people who have ideas, who express those ideas. Oh, I met fascinating people in England, and so I enjoyed my stay in England very much. I was not about to up and leave. When they asked you to leave in 1775, if I'm getting that date right, was that a request? Or because my my understanding is that the British were questioning your loyalty and said you need to leave. Is is that correct? As I said, I had occasion and I had been in touch with the Privy Council on numerous occasions to bring to their attention matters of concern from the various colonies in America that I represented and other interests. So I was accustomed to talking to these people, and and they were accustomed to coming to me if they had questions about what was actually going on in the colonies. I was a representative. So let me me ask you about um, your son, uh, William. (laughs) Are you sure you want William? Now, William is interesting, but I think this is a more interesting story. Yeah, go ahead, please. So I was accustomed to talking to the Privy Council, and there was a matter that came up that needed attention, and I wanted to bring it before the Council, and I had scheduled uh, to talk to them, and that uh, to a postponement for whatever reason, and this started perhaps in, I don't know, September of the year, the year before, or whatever, but it, it was previously scheduled. and. The same thing happened again later. The the meeting that I was use, that I was going to discuss uh, this matter with the uh, Privy Council was re- rescheduled, and so the matter was was tabled, and I uh, I sat on it for a while longer. Well, it happened. It was finally rescheduled, and I was brought in to to the council, uh, looking to talk about this particular matter, which I, we can talk about later if you like. Well, it happened unbeknownst to me that the day before this final meeting of the Privy Council, the day before, word came back to England of the Boston Tea Party. And of course, you're familiar with that event. 
Yes. And I suspect you also know that tea that's brewed with seawater is dreadful. So it <laughs> yes. rather destroyed it rather destroyed a great deal of tea, the holdings of a company that could ill afford such a a washing, if it as it were. And 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 as it happened, I walked into the meeting prepared to discuss something. And when I got there, everyone I ever knew in the Privy Council was there because they had been told about the Boston Tea Party. And ah. they were wrapped and, and, and whipped up by uh, 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 Wedderburn, the Solicitor General at the time, who proceeded when I arrived to chastise me for my participation in the anti-English sentiment that was growing rampant in, in the colonies, and I was obviously at fault, and I was obviously the one responsible. He blamed me for everything that ever happened that was wrong with the colonies that happened against Britain. I, I was shocked. I was as true a British subject as you would find. I was born British. I was now almost 70 years old. And living there for 15 years and reading about what's happening in the colonies in the newspaper and then they blamed everything on you. Absolutely. I ah, was that's interesting. I, I stood there. Of course, I had nothing to say, but I could say nothing, and I did not say anything. I just stood there. At the end of this harangue, one hour of Franklin is this and Franklin is that and Franklin is a traitor to the crown. A traitor to the crown. They called you a traitor? Oh, yes, indeed. And anything wow. else to think of. And at the end of that hour, I turned and I left. And as you might suspect, that was a turning point in my relationship with myself as much as with anyone else. For I went into that meeting a firm believer in the partnership of England and, and the colonies. I was a patriot. But when I turned and left, I realized that there could never be a cementing of a relationship that I was expecting between Britain and her colonies. She would never treat us equally. She never would consider us worthy of being treated equally. And so as I left, I left as an American patriot. I became enamored of and supportive of the movement to separate from Britain at that moment. That's the moment where you became an American instead yes. of a British American. A British subject. I was, I could not think of myself as being British anymore. That's but I would become as ardent a supporter as you could possibly imagine. And for almost 70 years, I was I was a supporter of Britain and the Crown, but that didn't happen. As I think about that, and right before that, I had asked you about your son, William. Your son, William, remained a British loyalist prior to this moment. He wouldn't have been more of a loyalist 
than you would have been. You were both loyal to the crown. He forsook all of the camaraderie, all of the consanguinity, if you will, between us. And he left me and he left everything I stood for for 70 years. And I could never forgive him for that. I wonder if William, your son, I wonder if he had had that same experience that you had where he was in the room at the Privy Council and they were calling him a traitor, comparing him to somebody like Benedict Arnold, a traitor. I wonder if he would have had the same reckoning from being in that moment that he couldn't get from just receiving counsel from his father. I'm sure he knew about the events in the, uh, the cockpit. Thanks to Wedderburn and everyone else at the Privy Council, that event was publicized throughout England, that they finally were able to put the, uh, the weight on Franklin and call him what he deserved to be called. And from that point forward, you were, you were working towards being a separate country. Yes, not directly immediately. I was still in England. It took me some months before I could gather everything and finally make my way back home. But I did arrive back in uh, 75. I was exhausted. I was tired. I, was, I had represented the American people for so many years. I wanted just to be able to retire from politics, from everything, and, and relax and enjoy my old life. And, of course, I came yeah. home. I was almost immediately then put into the, uh, the uh, sent as a representative from Philadelphia, one of many, uh, to the Second Continental Congress. The first had already been held. And so I was a representative to the second. And of course, you know what the second one did. It was in line with my thinking. And, of course, I signed it. And, of course, from that point on, well... The world was never the same. Our lives in this country was never the same. This country was never the same. Everything changed so dramatically afterwards. Incredible. Dr. Franklin, I'm going to run out of time. You've been so generous with your time, and I thank you. I I'm going to ask you a, a couple quick questions if I can, and then I I'm just going to thank you for everything that you did and your time today. So I I'd like to ask you, uh, when, when people speak of you in this time, you are listed as many things. A printer, a polymath, a writer, a scientist, an inventor, a statesman, a diplomat, a publisher, and uh, a philosopher. But my understanding is, is that even as you were having great success, you always wanted to be known as a printer. Why was that first above everything else? Well, that's what I studied, and that's what I trained as. And so it makes sense that if you are going to be known as something, you should be known for what you're trained in, you know, if you're, uh, or what you've done all your life. And I have always held the word uh, magically in my hand as being uh, the ability to, to share ideas, to share cogitative resource, if you will. And so. I would consider myself a printer simply because that is how I was trained. Okay. My understanding is that you, you believe in the existence of a, a higher being or God. 
and that uh, religion plays a role in encouraging people to act virtuous. As a believer, coming from a background of believers, I understand you didn't attend church very often. I'm curious what your, your thoughts would be on that. I believe in God. I'm a deist. But that's the point. I believe in God. I don't necessarily believe that so many of these churches that have come to bear witness to God speak for God specifically. And if God is... I'm sorry. I, I, uh, perhaps it's the hour. Uh, uh, the sun is is beginning to set, you see, and I, uh, I think I'm I'm uh, uh, weary of talking into my what's left of my apple, but uh, but I, I I felt that if you believe in God, that's quite acceptable. But to okay. believe in God as interpreted by other men is a distillation of the word of God. And I didn't feel that was the way it should be. I don't begrudge anyone who feels that's important or that's how they, they want to see their life. But as far as I'm concerned, if I believe in God, well, then I'm going to be dealing with God directly. Oh, okay. Just one last question then. So I'm going to ask an absurd one and then I'm going to thank you. Uh, I was told that uh, you um, airbathed in the nude is, is that correct, sir? And if so, why? Well, that's the only way if you're going to let the air circulate about your body is to make it uh, your body available so that the air can circulate. And if you're covered with clothes, the air doesn't do that. Now, you don't do this in front of an open window or in front of an open door. Of course not. You protect yourself. You're, you're not there to exhibit yourself to the, to the world, but you're there to take the healing quality of the air and let it move through through the through the crevices and across the the surface of your body and cleanse it. And and yes, I believe very firmly in in the air bath, and I enjoy. Well, you know, I have always believed in cleanliness. So it it's not just uh, an air bath, but I also do believe in bathing and washing and soap. My father made soap, so you can assure yourself that even if we had no food, which we did. We would always have soap in the house, so we could always wash. And cleanliness was uh, one of my fundamental beliefs, that uh, along with uh, theocracy, that cleanliness was very important to life. And in addition to water and soap, air does a beautiful job. I think uh, when you say cleanliness, I know that was the tenth of your, your, your 13 virtues which I have, uh, have had hanging on my wall for at least 15 years since I last read your autobiography, which I understand that you're probably still working on. And I, I guess I'm going to go ahead and, and finish because I, you know, I can tell that I think I'm wearing you out, and I, I, I just want to thank you so much for your time. I, I want to finish with a, a quote of yours that I heard, and, and this may not even be yours. I may be incorrect, but it's something that, I heard that has affected me my whole life, and it is, do not squander the time, because that is the stuff that life is made of. Indeed, and sir. I thank, I, I thank you for that, 
And I, when I read your, uh, your virtues and I read the one industry, which is lose no time, be always employed in something useful, cut off all unnecessary actions, I think that is just another way of saying that extraordinary quote of yours. And I guess as, as we're finished, I, I would just ask, as you look back at your life, having done so much, having made your time so useful, it does appear when I was reading your autobiography that that you perhaps still look as, at your life as a first draft in which there may be some things that you wish that you had done differently. And I was wondering if you could just maybe, if there was one thought that came to your mind, if you could look back and do one thing differently, what, what the first thing that comes to your mind might have been. I probably should have loved Deborah more. I probably should have been with her more. Possibly, possibly, uh, I'm not dissatisfied with my life. I have had a very magnificently privileged life, thanks to Providence, I'm sure. And I'm not complaining. I don't want you to misinterpret. But I, I probably should have been with Deborah more. I did love her. I think when we all get to the end, it's always the people that we wish that we spent more time with. Dr. Franklin, thank you so much for your time and everything that you've done. I'm wishing you good health for the rest of your year, sir. Well, I appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Goodbye. And there he goes, the truly one-of-a-kind Dr. Benjamin Franklin. He once said, It's hard for an empty bag to stand upright. I have no clue what that means, but I always thought it referenced the difficulty of sticking to your principles if your basic needs have not been met first. I suspect that this explains why Franklin's work ethic at a young age allowed him to make his fortune early. Knowing that his bag was already full, Franklin continued to create useful inventions like the lightning rod, which he never patented. Instead, he gave it to the world without thought of profit or benefit to himself. Franklin knew he was a cut above the rest, and many think he welcomed the responsibility to teach the masses so they could better themselves, as he did with his books. In the 1750s, he helped create a plan to change the college system, to be more inclusive. The plan meant that all classes were to be taught in English instead of Latin. Also, there would be no religious requirements. And instead of one tutor teaching for four years, subjects would be taught by experts or professors. Our colleges use that method now, and the lightning rod is on top of every tall building that doesn't want to be burned down. Thank you for listening, and don't forget that when you subscribe to our podcast and tell a friend about the Calling History podcast, you are making it possible for us to create more content. I'm Tony Dean, and until next time, I'm history.